All right. Let's take a seat. This sermon is not going to preach itself, unfortunately, so... If you would, be opening up to John chapter 6, please. We have been going through a journey through the Gospel of John, and for the last several weeks we've been in John chapter 6. It is a long chapter, 71 verses, but it is also an incredibly rich and challenging chapter, and so we've been taking our time getting through the text. Today we're finally going to wrap up John chapter 6. And so if you turn over to John chapter 6, let me just remind you of kind of a rough outline we had at the beginning of this chapter Jesus feeds miraculously a group of 5,000 men plus women and children with just a little bit of bread and a few fish, 12 baskets left over after he feeds everyone. And so the crowds who have already been following him because of some of the things they saw him do in Jerusalem are now desperate to follow after him, seeing what he'll do next and loving the food that he provided them with. And so Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee on the heels of his disciples who were growing across the sea in a boat, he joins them by walking across the water. And so we talked about that. The crowds realize the next morning that he's gone, and so they go across the sea themselves trying to find him. And when they get there, he's critical of their motivation and says, I know why you're here. It's not because of the signs that I performed, but because of the bread that you ate. And it launches this discourse that Jesus has regarding himself as the bread of life and what that might mean for those who are following after him. And so we're going to finish that bread of life discourse this morning. And as we go through the rest of our text this morning, there's two questions I'd like us to think about. Number one, what did Jesus say? Let's unpack exactly what Jesus is saying here to the crowds. And number two, and just as important, is how did the crowds react to what Jesus said? Said Because it's not just the weight of Jesus' words here that causes us to sometimes struggle with this chapter, but the reaction that the crowds had to what he actually said. And so we're going to think about these two things as we move through the text together. And real quick, um, give Michael and Alicia a big thank you afterwards, if you would. They were up on a ladder in the back trying to uh, reset our air conditioner. So uh, we're grateful for all the ways God has blessed us, and especially for Michael and Alicia and their bravery. On a ladder. So, and especially for Michael being there with his mom because he almost left her on the ladder to come do announcements. So we're glad, we're glad you didn't do that. We would hear Alicia's soft whimpering later this afternoon while she's stuck on the ladder. So no, thank you guys. We appreciate it. Jesus, where we left last week in, in verse 48, is Jesus emphatically for the second time makes this statement about himself. And we've talked about these I am statements that are, we're going to encounter as we go throughout the Gospel of John. This is the first of those I am statements. I am the bread of life. They were seeking after the bread that he gave them, but he's saying there's something more important than that physical bread. It's me. I am the bread of life. On the heels of that, he says this, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. Now, the reason he brings that up is because they had done that first. If you recall, the last time we were in this text is they find Jesus on the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's encouraging them to believe in him. Their response is, okay, but what are you going to do to show us a sign? And then as almost a way of manipulating in, into doing what they wanted him to do, they remind him, remember what Moses did. 
He gave us manna in the wilderness, wink, wink. Why don't you give us some more bread, right? And so he takes them back to that story. Okay, you want to talk about manna, let's talk about manna. Your ancestors, they ate the manna that God gave them through Moses. That's true. Yet they what? They died. Now don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not saying they died because they ate the manna. Okay, he's not talking about toxic manna. He's saying the manna sustained them for a time, but then what happened to that generation? The same thing that happens to every generation on the earth. They died. Food can sustain you, but eventually even food can't keep you alive forever. There's a limit to what that bread can do through the way it sustains you. That manna was good because it sustained them in the wilderness, but the fate they met is the same fate that everyone under the curse of sin will eventually meet, and that is physical death. God is offering you a gift better than physical bread because it can overcome the thing even physical bread can't. It won't keep you alive for a day, it'll keep you alive forever. So this is what he says, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Now that sounds amazing. And they've already asked him previously, give us this bread, just like the Samaritan woman at the well, give me this water that you're talking about. I want that thing that's going to sustain me forever. But then here's where things start to get challenging. He says, the bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of this world. The bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of this world. Now suddenly we've got some trouble understanding exactly where Jesus is going here. We like the idea of bread that can sustain us forever, but what does it have to do with his flesh? Now let me pause for just a second. We have, like we've talked about before, the great benefit of looking back at this text on this side of resurrection. In other words, we understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross and what God accomplished through him through the resurrection. Understanding all that, we get to look back and we have a better frame of reference than they did for understanding this. And yet there's still a challenge that remains. The Jews begin to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is an uncomfortable illustration talking about eating someone's flesh. So what is Jesus on about here? Well, that makes total sense, doesn't it? Right? There is a challenge in this text. And I want us to come face to face with this challenge this morning. We're going to talk about this over and over again as we work through the text, the way that this text challenges us. Jesus said to them, here's what I find remarkable, is that he doubles down on the difficulty. Okay, they're struggling to understand what he's saying. Is he just using a figure of speech? Is this all just a metaphor? Or is he being literal here? And that's something we still struggle with in this text today. Okay, well, you could say this is all just a metaphor, but flesh isn't a metaphor. Jesus didn't didn't, didn't um, come in the flesh as some kind of allegory. He came literally in the flesh. He literally took on flesh. He literally died on the cross. And so how do we wade through the idea between what is literal here and what is figurative? And so Jesus doesn't pause and say, okay, I can see you're having trouble. Let me make this easier for you. 
He does the opposite. He doubles down on the difficulty here and challenges them even further with what he says. So this is how he responds to their lack of understanding. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Now, be honest. Okay? We get to look at this from our perspective. You're in that crowd on that day hearing this. How put off are you? By a statement like that. How much are you struggling in that moment to wrap your head around what this man is saying? Hey, we came for more food, and now you're saying this? Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink, and whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. He doesn't soften the difficulty of this passage. He just doubles down. He repeats the same thing. You've got to eat my flesh, and you've got to drink my blood. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. And you can almost see him as he, as he speaking, you know, motioning towards his own body. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors, they ate the manna. And I know you're after more manna, but they ate the manna and they died. If you want to live forever, whoever feeds on this bread, his body, will live forever. And he said all this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, and now here's their reaction yet again. On hearing this, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And I want, I want you to see something. This isn't just a, a crowd of casual observers that are struggling with Jesus' words here. These are his disciples. Those who had made a commitment to follow after him are struggling with what Jesus is saying, and they're making the comment, This is a hard teaching. And the question is, who can accept it? The reason that this is such a hard teaching for them is for several different reasons. Number one, like we talked about before, trying to wade through what's literal and what's figurative. Number two is because it's kind of an off-putting, disgusting illustration. The idea of eating human flesh and drinking human blood. So you've got to come to terms with just the, the off-putting nature of what Jesus is saying to begin with. But number three is because if they were to take this literally and do what Jesus is asking them to do, they would be in violation of God's law. And so how can this man that we think is sent by God give us a commandment that would actually break the law of God? Here's what I mean by that. If you're going to eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood, Genesis chapter 9 God has brought Noah and his family safely through the flood and he starts a new covenant with them and he says, just as I previously gave you all the plants of the earth for food, I'm now giving you all of the animals for food. But there's one big caveat to that whole conversation. You can eat the flesh of animals, but this is what you can't do. You must not eat meat that has lifeblood still in it. There is something precious in the eyes of our creator regarding blood. It's what sustains all of animal and human life on the earth. We find it again in Leviticus chapter 17 as God is giving them the law. He says, I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood. 
and I will cut them off from the people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. I want you to think about this for just a minute, that system of sacrifice that the Israelites practiced as atonement for sin. They would shed blood on the altar. What does that tell us about the value that blood holds in the eyes of our Creator? They didn't shed that blood because it was of no importance to the Creator. They shed that blood because it was of ultimate importance to the Creator. There's something so valuable about lifeblood. Life is a gift that God gave to everything walking and breathing on this planet. To shed blood is of extreme significance and weight. And to eat blood is to profane all of that. And it was com commanded by God not to have any partaking in the eating of blood. And so he says, it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. And so I'm just trying to get you to be in the frame of mind of these people who are hearing this for the first time. It's difficult for many reasons. Just the, the teaching itself is challenging, it's gross, it's off-putting, but also, if they're to take it at face value and understand this literally, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? If we're going to eat human flesh and drink human blood, are you kidding me? Where are we going here? That's in violation of God's will. And so, of course, they're struggling with all of this. Now, let's pause for just a second. I'm going to ask you a question. Help kind of bring this all into focus. What do bread and wine do? Well, they give life, don't they? Why did God give the Israelites manna in the wilderness? So that they could what? Stay alive. Because you can't go too long without eating food until you die because of it. You run out of calories, you run out of stores in your body, and eventually you'll die. What does bread do? Bread is a symbol for all kinds of food that God gives us, right? Bread gives life. What does wine do? It gives life. I would also add that they bring joy to people, don't they? How many of you enjoy eating? <laughs> you don't have to nod so passionately, Ryan. Okay, we get it, all right? How many of you enjoy watching cooking shows? Baking shows, cooking shows, cooking competitions? Okay, why? Okay, maybe you like cooking, but what is the joy in cooking? It's that God gave us something beautiful in food, didn't he? It's, it's not tasteless. It brings joy to eat. How many of you are going to passionately debate with your family about where you're going to eat, you know, today? Because... The things that we eat bring us joy, and I like certain things more than others. God gives us life, and he gives us joy in life by providing us with bread and wine. They sustain us. When you think about the illustration Jesus is making here at face value, what do the body and blood of Jesus do? Like bread and wine, they give us what? They give us life, and they give us joy in that life. And at the heart of what he's really trying to get these people to understand is you can spend your life chasing after bread and wine to stay alive for another day, or you can understand the value in what God is offering you through my sacrifice, the sacrifice of my flesh and my blood. They didn't understand that yet because it hadn't taken place, but they would. You can see the value in this, what I'm going to do on your behalf, and understand that it is so much more valuable than just another day alive on the earth. It's life eternal that I'm offering you. Now that helps us to understand this a little bit easier, right? But not all the way. And I want to ask the question, has the difficulty here in this passage ever truly been resolved? And I would suggest to you that it hasn't. When you survey what the earliest 
Christian thinkers and leaders were writing about John chapter 6 and what to do with this. They don't always agree on how we're to understand it and how we're to make application of it. If you were to survey the, the brightest minds in, in, in biblical exposition today, look at the, the best commentaries out on the market, not all of them agree on how we're supposed to understand this and how we're supposed to apply it. And I'm sure if we just had a roundtable discussion amongst us now, there would be some disagreement over exactly what Jesus is trying to get across here. But here's something I'd like you to think about. I want to make a suggestion to you. And let me just say this before I even do that. that When I'm sharing my opinion on something, you are under no obligation to agree with me. I hope you know that. But this is what I think. I think that we do passages like this a great injustice if our number one goal in studying them is to make them easy. Sometimes people in my position who are tasked with teaching or preaching the word, we look at a passage, especially a difficult passage, and we say, okay, what I've really got to do here is I've got to help people understand this so that it becomes easier. Some of that is good. In fact, oftentimes that's good because there are challenges we have in understanding Scripture. There are you know, linguistic difficulties that we have to overcome. There's just the challenge that comes with, I'm a 21st century American and Jesus is addressing first century Israelites. There's cultural divides that we have to undercome, overcome. If we can help better equip ourselves to understand Scripture in its original context, then yes, it becomes easier to understand. I'm not suggesting we don't do that. I'm just saying that the weight of some of these passages is in the challenge. And if we remove the challenge and our goal is just to make it easy... If we take a difficult-to-handle passage and we sand off all the corners so it's easier to grab hold of, then maybe we've robbed it of its weight and its significance. And that's not just on me, by the way. Some of that's on you as well. As you listen to preaching and teaching, if your main goal is just to have the preacher get up and make it easy so you don't have to think about it critically for the rest of the week, I'm sorry. I want you to think about this critically for the rest of the week. I hope there's a weight on you as you leave here today from this passage in Jesus' words that eats at you so that you have to spend more time in the text this week because your spirit's restless and you just won't be satisfied until you've wrestled sufficiently with the weight of this passage. So I'm not going to try to make it easier. I'll try to give you the tools I can available to me to help you understand it more fully. But the point of this passage is that it is challenging. We should be challenged by what Jesus says here. So with that in mind, what is Jesus really talking about? What is his point in talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? And traditionally throughout Christian history and even up until today, there are two main ways that people read and interpret this passage. So the first one is this, and I'll just frame both of these as a question. Is this primarily about the Eucharist. Now let me pause for a second because some of you are probably saying what in the world is a Eucharist, okay? We call it communion or the Lord's Supper. The earliest Christian communities referred to it as the Eucharist, borrowing the Greek word that's used in the text for the giving of thanks that Jesus offered when he broke the bread and shared it and he shared the cup. He gave thanks. That's the word that we use and so we call it the Eucharist. If you think about the language employed at the Eucharist or at the Last Supper, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, let's look at Matthew's uh, 
Matthew's recording here as an example. So Matthew chapter 26, if you want to look starting in verse 26. This is how Matthew records it. And the language is similar in all the synoptics, by the way. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he, broke, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, when you read John chapter 6 and you hear this language employed by Jesus of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, be honest, did the Lord's Supper come into your mind as a framework through which we can understand Jesus' words here? I think it's only natural that we do that. The language is so similar. What's very interesting, so proponents of this, that we should always read John chapter 6 purely in light of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, those who advocate for that would point out to us something very interesting. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the giving of the Lord's Supper, Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper in the context of the Passover, what we call the Last Supper. John doesn't. He does not record that. And so for some people, they look at this and they say, well, this is John's recording of the Lord's Supper. It's not that context, right? Because he's teaching in Capernaum now. He's nowhere near the foot of the cross yet. He's not outside Jerusalem. He's not about to enter into Gethsemane. This isn't the night before he's betrayed. He's not there yet. But this is John's way of using Lord's Supper language to get us to think about that. And to be honest, the language is very, very similar. But some people react against that and say, no, that's not the context at all. And to be honest, it's not the original context, is it? It's not the immediate context. Is Jesus talking about the Lord's Supper? Is he instituting the Lord's Supper in John chapter 6? No, that's not what he's doing. Does he have that in mind? Does John have that in mind as he writes it? That's the question. But those who are opposed to it would say things like this. And, and I think we fall into this camp. We approach our language concerning the Lord's Supper very carefully as a reaction to a specific Catholic doctrine regarding communion, what they call the, the real presence of Christ. That is, when they take Holy Communion and the bread and the wine are prayed over and they're blessed, they become, in a real way, the body, the flesh, and the blood of Jesus. It's something that's called transubstantiation. Most of the Protestant world rejects that teaching. In our fellowship, in our brotherhood, we reject that, and we reject it and we react against it so strongly that it then colors the way that we think about this. Case in point, Ryan, I am very sorry, because <laughs> I'm going to make an illustration here that's going to feel like I'm throwing you under the bus. I am not. All right, I love you. I appreciate everything you said. But you use language that we've been taught, all of us, in the Lord's church, which is when we take the, the, the grape juice and the cracker, the bread and the wine, we refer to them specifically as what? As emblems. We use language specifically because we are reacting against that other doctrine. And we'll say, this is the bread which represents his body. This is the blood which represents his body. I am not being critical of that. That is not my purpose this morning. I'm just trying to help you see how and why we do the things that we do. Why do we feel so importantly that we have to say this only represents the body and blood of Jesus? Because we don't believe in transubstantiation and we want to make that crystal clear. But when we do that, we make a very interesting decision because we choose to use words that aren't Jesus' original words. Go back to Matthew 26. Take and eat. This is bread that represents my body. 
Is that what he says? No, he says, take and eat. This is my body. The words of Jesus still make us uncomfortable today. That's my point. They make us uncomfortable. And how we interpret this should be dictated by what Jesus intended to say, not by what we hope he's not saying. Okay, so is it about the Eucharist? We've talked about that. Is it about, is it the whole thing just a metaphor for firm conviction and belief in his words and the value of what Jesus is teaching? Well, obviously, that's the immediate context here. We know that from other places we've already read. You go back to verses 28 and 29, then they asked him, what must we do to work the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to do what? To believe in the one he has sent, referring to himself. Believe in me. This is all about belief, and specifically belief in what he was saying. Then Jesus declared later on in verse 35 and 36, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. He's critical of their unbelief. So is this all a metaphor for belief in Jesus and is his word? So what's the right answer? Is it about the Eucharist? Is it about belief in his words? Yes. That's the answer. I don't think we have to reject one in favor of the other. Why not both? Why not read this in its immediate context as a giant metaphor for conviction and the value of who Jesus is, what he is teaching, the sacrifice he's going to make on our behalf, and what that means for us. The offer Jesus is making through him. But why can't we also read it in light of the Eucharist? I've heard preachers, preachers get very upset before. When somebody gets up, like Ryan did, if they were to read John chapter 6 as a way of preparing our minds for the Lord's Supper, don't do that. It has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. I disagree strongly. I don't think it's all about the Lord's Supper, but I don't know how to read John chapter 6 without understanding that, that language that he uses in light of what we just did this morning, the highlight of our very assembly, that we partake in the body and the blood of our Lord. Those are Paul's words. So just some things to think about. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, I hope you'll wrestle with it this week. I really do. I hope you will wrestle with it this week. Picking up in verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? He knows that they're struggling with what he's saying. Like I said, he's been given every opportunity to dumb it down, to go back and say it in a way that's not so off-putting, but he doesn't. So he asks them the question, does this offend you? If this offends you, then imagine what else you're going to be offended by. Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? And would they come to see that? Yeah, pick up Acts chapter 1 and read it. What do they see? Exactly that thing. Jesus ascending back to the right hand of the Father. If you can't come to terms with this, how are you going to come to terms with what else you're going to witness? You are so handicapped by your inability to see beyond the physical and into the spiritual. And this is what he says The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. When we are challenged by the words, of Jesus because of our physical limitations. We can choose to be stuck in that mode forever or we can choose to trust in him so fully and allow the spirit to be at work in us that he can reveal to us things that we wouldn't normally understand. This is right in line with what we talked about the fruits of the spirit last week. 
from Galatians chapter 5. Those fruits of the Spirit don't naturally grow in our hearts. They only grow when cultivated and planted and nourished by the Spirit. The Spirit reveals in us what the flesh can never do, including an understanding of those challenging things that Jesus teaches us. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of Spirit and life. Do you understand the difference that's illustrated here? On one hand, a group of people who hear the words of Jesus and say, they're too much, I can't handle it. Or, even though they're challenging, I recognize what they are. Words full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you, he says, who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. God is at work in all of this, in our understanding of who he is. He is at work in that. I feel like sometimes we approach the way we share the gospel with people, the way we ourselves understand the gospel, as if God has given us a giant puzzle or a riddle. And if we're smart enough to unlock the keys to that riddle, then we can understand it, and we can be saved based on the merit of our own brilliance. But that's not true, is it? It's not true at all. God is at work in this process, calling us to him, bringing us to him, revealing truth to us through his Son and through the Spirit. And we have to trust in that process, not in our own understanding, but in the process that God had put in place to overcome the weakness of the flesh and make the Spirit alive in our lives. And then here's kind of the climax of this whole story. Like I said at the beginning, the challenge here is twofold. Understanding what Jesus is talking about and then coming to terms with how people react to it. From this time, many of his disciples, they're not just struggling, they turn back and they no longer followed him. This is the end of the line for them. Their discipleship only went so far and this is the end of the line. You have challenged me so deeply that my only alternative now is not to trust in you more fully in hopes that you reveal truth to me, but to turn away from you because I just don't get it. And it's an amazing thing that this happens. And I want to ask a question, and bear with me as I do this because I, I hope you don't find it blasphemous. I want to ask a question. I want you to think about it. Did Jesus fail? By modern American Christian standards, the number one goal of the kingdom of God is to attract crowds and do everything we can to keep crowds. The American church has been so impacted by a seeker-first mentality where everything the church does is done in attempt to attract large groups of people and then retain large groups of people. And so everything we do is meant to be attractive to those who don't yet understand Jesus. And you're saying, well, what can be wrong with that? Well, it depends on where it goes. If our only concern is that we get only five-star reviews on Yelp, then it's going to impact the way that we teach and preach, isn't it? I find it very interesting here. Jesus makes it clear that his number one priority was not in attracting crowds. It was in gaining disciples, finding out who it was that trusted in him so fully that there was no end to their discipleship. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. I think this passage should give us pause and cause us to think more critically about the way that we as a church 
think about our role in bringing people to Christ. We're not selling movie tickets. We're asking people to give their lives over to the Son of God. Those are two very different approaches. This isn't the only time that Jesus does this kind of thing, challenges people this deeply. That passage that Floyd read for us this morning is a perfect example. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You want to follow after me? You've got to be willing to, in comparison to your love for me, hate everything about your life, where I become the most important feature of your life. Because when you get there, then there's no end to your discipleship. You will follow me as far as I ask you to go. Another example here is in Luke chapter 14. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you, uh, you can, I don't what? You have, cannot, I don't know what I did there. You cannot be my disciples. Are we willing to sacrifice everything? Now, don't misunderstand the point I'm making or what Jesus is calling you to here. He's not saying that a certain amount of sacrifice merits your salvation. He's saying that salvation only comes through him But if you don't fully trust in him, you'll never find that salvation. Discipleship is different than fandom. He's not asking for fans. He's asking for disciples. How much are you willing to give and how far are you willing to go in order to find the Savior that you're looking for? That's the question. All of this wrapped up in what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. You guys know this one. It's a famous passage. Enter through what? The narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. We see that play out in this passage where he's got a large group of people, and yet the only ones who stick around at the end are the twelve. And not even all of them are true disciples. He's going to point out in a minute, one of you is a devil. Only eleven of the twelve were true in their intentions. So we see this play out. And I'm just saying, for for those of us who wish not only ourselves to be disciples, but to bring other people into that fold of discipleship, into the kingdom alongside us, who want other people to know their God and their Savior and to love Him the way that we do, we got to be careful. If we spend all of our time leading people to the narrow gate, that's what we're asked to do. By the way, What's the name of that gate? His name is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one enters into the Father except through him. It's the finding of Jesus that is difficult. Even this group of people, they found him, and then they didn't really recognize who he was because they left. If they knew who he really was, they would have never left. There would be no end to their discipleship. If we spend all of our effort trying to pry open that gate to make it wider, instead of just bringing people to the door himself, I think the kingdom would benefit greatly. I just encourage you to think more critically about that. So we get to the end of our passage here. You do not want to leave two, do you? This is the question Jesus poses to the twelve. Okay, everybody else is leaving. Are you going to go too? And Simon Peter answered him, And Peter has two great confessions of faith, I think, in the Gospels. One is probably more famous in Matthew chapter 16. But this one should get equal attention. Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. What is the difference between the 12, or the 11 really, and the crowds that left? The crowds had not yet determined this. The 12 had, and the only reason they had is because God had granted them, granted that to them. But they had come to believe in who he was and that only he has the words of eternal life, which means that even when those words are challenging and we don't get them at first glance, we still recognize the value. And our temptation is not to leave, but to seek him even more. So here's the question. Then the twelve replied, have I not, or Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, would later betray him. So that's the end of our text. Here's the question I want to leave you with. Who are we in this scenario? And if you're asking yourself, I've never seen that spelling of scenario before. <laughs> Neither have I, but Paisley asked if she could help me make a slide this week. And this is how she spelled scenario, and I kind of like it, okay? So who are we in this scenario? Are we that group among the crowd who really like the idea of free meals? Are we among the 12 who recognize who Jesus is and that there's nowhere else to go to find eternal life? Or are we like, heaven forbid, Judas, who proclaim our allegiance, who decide to be disciples, and then are willing to turn our backs on him when the opportunity arises? Throughout this Gospel of John, we've been asking the question, as John wants us to, who is Jesus? This is the primary question presented in the Gospel of John. But there's a subtext to all of this, and one that's been there subtly, and now it's right in our face. The second question is, who are we? Who are we? Who is Jesus, and who are we? If you have come to determine, like the twelve have, that Jesus is the Holy One from God, and that only He has the words of eternal life, then the question that remains to ask is, who are you? Are you willing to be a disciple? And the challenge he would give you if you're saying, yes, I am, is the same he gave throughout the Gospels. Listen, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you sure you're ready to follow me? I want to follow you, Jesus, but my loved one just passed away. Let me go to the funeral. Let the dead bury their dead. You come and you follow me now. Are you ready to respond to the challenge of Jesus and the call to discipleship? If you're saying this morning, I'm ready to follow him, my question for you is, are you sure? And how far are you willing to go? Are you willing to follow him until the bread runs out? Are you willing to follow him until the teaching gets just a little bit too challenging? Are you ready to follow him until persecutions come? Are you ready to follow him until the AC stops working? How far are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to follow him all the way? None of us can follow him all the way. It's not within us to do it. And that's where grace comes in. Are you willing to accept the grace of your Savior this morning? Are you ready to take the first step in discipleship this morning? And if you are, then we give you an invitation. Let us help you. Let us hold your hand as you take that step into discipleship. Let us know if we can do that for you this morning. Before you stand and sing, I know everybody's ready. Right. In the old days, remember when you'd grab the songbook 
as a sign to the preacher that it's time to end. Yeah, remember that? Okay, I used to do that as a kid. All right, one last thing. One of the beautiful things about discipleship is that God has called us into discipleship as a community. Bruce did a great job talking about it in Sunday morning class for the last few weeks. We are called into community. I'm not asked to follow him on my own. I'm asked to follow him as a part of a family that he makes me a part of. One of the great ways that we can come to understand those most challenging parts of the text together is when we do it together. And I would just like to share an opportunity with you today. We haven't talked about this in a while, and I want to remind you of it, of our small groups that go on throughout the month. It is an awesome thing to come together as an entire assembly and to sing together and to worship together, but it's a challenging thing in the midst of that short assembly to really build bonds and relationships with each other. I get, if I'm lucky, like 10 seconds to say hi to some of you guys and ask you how your week is, but the real relationship building, it takes time. And one of the great ways for that to take place is within the context of our small groups. And so if you are not a part of our small groups, I want to strongly encourage you to take advantage of them because real growth happens there. Relationship building, we can grab a hold of those challenges Jesus offers and grow together through them. And so just as a reminder, we've got four different small groups that meet throughout the week. The first is our longest running, hosted by Ray and Kay Ann McPeak, and that happens on the second Friday of each month. Uh, Ray and Kayan, where are you guys? Could you raise your hand? Okay, so look around the Ray and Kayan here. Raise your hands nice and high. Okay, if you guys don't know who they are and you want to find out more about their small group, go and talk to them afterwards. Second one is hosted by Jason and Lenon Clark, who are unfortunately on the road traveling this weekend, but their groups meet uh, the second and fourth Saturday afternoons of each month. They're right here in Mission Viejo. And so if you want more information about that, come and talk to me afterwards. I'll fill you in on what their group's all about. Uh, Bruce and Renee Hippolyte also host a group. Uh, Bruce, could you raise your hand? Renee's uh, on the road this weekend, but Bruce is here. They are on the third Friday night of each month, and they live in Lake Forest. So if you're in that direction, you'd like to take advantage, uh, see Bruce afterwards. Find out more about that. And finally, uh, Glenn and Sandy Alsup. Uh, Glenn, can you raise your hand? Sandy's out helping the kids right now. Uh, they live in um, Ladera Ranch, not far from here. Their meeting happens to be today, and so if you're looking for a meeting to take place in sooner rather than later, they've got one 4.30 this afternoon, right? See Glenn afterwards, he'll give you information on where they live. That's a great one to take part in if you have littles at home, if you've got small children, it's kind of become the de facto uh, kid place, and so you'll find a, a good place there. These are the small groups that are going on right now. Please consider taking advantage of them. Go see the hosts afterwards and find out how you can get plugged in. That's the last word for me. How can we serve you this morning? We would love to have the opportunity to do that. If you need anything from us as a church, please let us know what it is. Let's stand and let's sing this last song together. Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. You'll lead me, and I will follow you all of my days. Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you.
You'll lead me, and I will follow you.